0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. And so you, it's funny to me, I, I, I wrote this little outline with an introduction that begins if you grew up in the Pacific Northwest or maybe in Vancouver or especially in the islands between them. You may have already heard about the story we're going to talk about today, which is the Pig War. Mm-hmm. If you have tuned in thinking this is about the Bay of Pigs invasion, I'm sorry, we're talking about something else. Um, <laughs> however, you you did grow up in that area, and it was a new story to you. Yeah, I mean, I didn't uh, do all of my growing up there. I moved from there when I was uh, a little over nine. But I still have siblings there and have gone back there several times, and I had never heard of it. Yeah. And right in that area. Right I mean, there. Like, like <laughs> Tacoma and Puyallup, which is right outside uh, Seattle. So I, sh- I should have heard of it, but I never had. Well. I may have been too young when I left. I missed yeah. that chunk. Well, this was recommended as a subject by listener Katie, and it is basically a story of how in 1859, the United States and Britain Very nearly went to war over an issue that seems more likely to start a feud between Hatfields and McCoys, which is that an American settler shot a Canadian pig that was rooting around in his garden. Doesn't that sound silly? Yes, and I can also see how that would escalate (laughs) in a Hatfield and McCoy style. Oh, yeah. Yes, so that is what we are going to talk about today. (laughs) Of course people had been living on what is now known as San Juan Island uh, between the mainland of Washington and the island of Vancouver for thousands of years before European explorers started pushing into the Pacific Northwest. So during this sort of European exploration phase, Spain was the first uh, country to claim and rename this island when Francisco Eliza dubbed it Isla y Archipelago de San Juan. Uh, Its location and fertile soil made it a really attractive spot for the Spanish, as well as the British and the Americans, although Spain eventually withdrew from the area. In 1818, the United States and Britain signed the Anglo-American Convention, which reinforced England's control over the eastern half of Canada, while allowing both nations to operate what was then called Oregon country jointly. Citizens of both nations would be allowed to live in this area, and the agreement would be renewed every decade unless one nation or the other could conclude that it had settled the region. Yeah, so it was basically, if some person or country eventually had the most guys in there, it reminds me of like a board gate where like, I, know, it's like I, I have 30 miniatures in here, so it's mine now. <laughs> um, So... Uh, For the first several decades, both sides were kind of thinking that it was unlikely that this thing was going to be renewed. American settlers and prospectors thought they clearly had the advantage. And at the same time, so did English merchants and trappers. This is probably an indication that it was pretty evenly divided. For a while, yes. Uh, but eventually the tide did start to shift. And the American population in Oregon country skyrocketed between 1840 and 1845. And around this same time, fur trading started to dwindle as the region suffered from over-trapping. And this made it less attractive to England. And England was less motivated to maintain its boundaries, whereas the U.S. was still quite eager for the land. So in 1846, the U.S. and Great Britain signed the Treaty of Oregon. This is the treaty that set the border between the United States and Canada at the 49th parallel. So that really long, straight portion, it looks straight on a map. If You're actually trying to walk down it. It is not remotely straight because it was delineated by people on the ground with with kind of primitive instruments. Um by this long stretch of border that is north of what's now North Dakota, Montana, and Washington, and south of Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. And it seems pretty self-explanatory until you get to the western end of the border. The treaty went on to say it, quote, shall be continued westward along the 49th parallel of north latitude to the middle of the channel which separates the continent from Vancouver's island and thence southerly through the middle of the said channel and of Fucas Straits to the Pacific Ocean. The problem was that this channel was really two large straits and a lot of other smaller waterways. The Harrow Strait lay next to Vancouver Island, and the Rosario Strait lay next to the mainland in what is now Washington. And in between were the San Juan Islands, which became disputed territory, with both the United States and Canada basically saying, that is mine. The largest island, the one known as San Juan Island, was the one that was in most demand. The U.S. made an official claim to the islands in 1853 by including it with the creation of Washington Territory. The Hudson's Bay Company, which had been operating on the island uh, since at least 1845, responded by building a sheep farm on the southern shore that September, which quickly started to flourish. A man named Charles Griffin was sent to run it, and he named it Bellevue. For a while, it was just Griffin and his staff and their sheep that were all living on this 55 square mile island. This doesn't sound like a huge population, but it was a pretty large sheep farm. There were like almost 5,000 sheep. But the sheep did not count as humans. No. <laughs> they, they, they did not. There's no equivalency. <laughs> um, so the land on San Juan Island was very rich and productive, and it became a prime location for American settlers, especially after gold rushes in the area kind of drew people out there. Uh-huh. And, and then, you know, they would fail and people would look for something else to do, yeah. like starting a farm. So soon, Americans coming into the region were staking claims in what had been the Hudson's Bay Company's grazing land. So the British government viewed all these American incomers as squatters. And tensions between the British and the Americans actually living there ran pretty high. So case in point, in 1854, a U.S. customs collector showed up on the island and tried to collect duties from Griffin's farm manager. And the farm manager swore out a warrant for the custom collector's arrest for trespassing on British soil. Then, in March of 1855, a sheriff from the Washington mainland brought his posse over the channel in the middle of the night and confiscated 35 of Griffin's sheep, claiming that they were going to be sold to pay back taxes. Hudson's Bay Company later demanded $15,000 in damages. This also led Vancouver's governor, James Douglas, to write to Isaac L. Stevens, who is his counterpart in Washington, uh, to complain about it. The name Isaac L. Stevens may ring a bell if you remember our Chief Seattle episode. He plays a role in that also. And this whole thing was raising enough eyebrows in Washington, D.C., that Secretary of State William L. Macy also wrote to Governor Stevens, basically saying, hey, please play nice, guys. Uh, he also asked for the British government to do the same with Governor Douglas, and they did. Sadly, this did not really help diffuse anything. And before we go into detail on why, let's take a moment and talk about a word from our sponsor. that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? Learn more at HowLifeUnfolds.com slash Today
1: I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a guggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited to availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details.
0: So let's get back to where things got simultaneously escalated and a little silly. American Lyman Cutler was part of the American influx of uh, settlers onto San Juan Island. He was a failed gold prospector who built a little cabin and planted a potato patch right by the Hudson's Bay Company's sheep run. He later claimed that Governor Stevens himself had told him that the land belonged to America, and so Cutler was claiming 160 acres under the Donation Land Claim Act of 1850. So like the Homestead Act later did in the Midwest, the Donation Land Claim Act allowed citizens over the age of 21 to claim a bunch of land for free if they met certain residency and improvement conditions. Number one, disputed land was not up for grabs under this act. And number two, the Land Claim Act expired in 1855 before Cutler even got there. And then number three, uh possibly a lesser, but definitely a critical point, his improvements were really not so great. His potato patch was only fenced on three sides, and that allowed animals to trot right in and plunder his crop. One of these invading animals was a boar, belonging to Charles Griffin of Bellevue Sheep Farm fame. Cutler claimed that he woke up one morning to the sound of laughter outside of his window. This was on June fifteenth, 1859. He looked outside to see one of Griffin's men laughing at a pig rooting through his potato patch. So Cutler went outside and shot it. This would not have been newsworthy if Cutler had not been American and if the pig had not effectively been the property of the Hudson's Bay Company, which was a trading company that ran much of the show in Canada. At first, the two men did try to work it out between themselves. Uh, Cutler offered to replace the pig, or to get estimates from three men about how much the pig was worth and then use that information to figure out how much money to repay Griffin for it. Uh Griffin, on the other hand, demanded a $100, saying that the pig was a prized breeder. And Cutler said, quote, better chance for lightning to strike you than for you to get a $100 for that hog. And then he stormed away in a huff. Yeah. Always fun when... <laughs> things escalate oh, and wait. become insulting. There's going to be so much more escalation. Uh Griffin took this matter to his bosses at the Hudson's Bay Company, who went to Cutler's cabin to try to get restitution. And of course, Cutler refused to pay. It is possible that the Hudson's Bay Company men also tried to have Cutler arrested. But if they did, uh it never came to fruition because he refused to go with the people who came to arrest him. Yeah, the records are a little unclear on that. Some sources say one thing, and some sources... It may have been attempted. Maybe so. But it never actually happened. So, that July, Brigadier General William S. Harney toured the area, and he noticed an American flag that Cutler and his friends had started flying for the Fourth of July holiday. He asked them about it, and they launched into this list of complaints about how vulnerable they were, both to attacks by Native Americans... Uh, and to mistreatment by the British. And they cited the pig incident in this process. Harney was staunchly anti-British. Uh, he had a little bit of a temper. He was very quick to anger, and he had a very foul mouth. Uh, by the end of his military career, he had been court-martialed four times. And even though he had just been to Vancouver to thank Governor Douglas for what a good job he'd been doing protecting the Americans from Native American attacks, he decided now would be a good time... To show some force. He characterized the Hudson's Bay Company's behavior as, quote, oppressive interference. And without consulting his command or the War Department, he sent in Company D, 9th U.S. Infantry under Captain George E. Pickett. The 66 men arrived on the USS Massachusetts and they camped right by the Hudson's Bay Company's wharf and the sheep farm, which, you know, Doesn't seem like they're provoking things at all. (laughs) Harney did eventually tell the war uh, department what he was doing, but he didn't send this letter until the July, until July the 19th, and it didn't actually get there until September. So for a long time, he was just doing what he wanted with no end being posturing and taunting people. Although Pickett's orders were to protect against Native Americans and the British, he posted a notice, uh, claiming that the camp was American property and subject only to U.S. laws and courts, and that he, in fact, was in command of it. Governor Douglas, having none of that, and believing that Britain had lost Oregon by just being too welcoming, responded by sending in the 21-gun HMS satellite, which was joined by the 31-gun frigate HMS Tribune under the command of Captain Jeffrey Phipps Hornby of the Royal Navy. And another warship uh, also came to anchor, so there were three warships now. off off the coast of this island. He also appointed a justice of the peace to enforce British law, which he claimed was the only law in effect on the island. So in spite of now facing down three warships, one of which carried 46 Royal Marines... Pickett refused to withdraw or stand down. He was publicly boastful, allegedly saying things like he would make a bunker hill of it if pressed. Although at the time, he sent worried-sounding dispatches asking for more reinforcements. Uh, And he appointed his own justice of the peace. Harney kept funneling more troops into the area. Pickett was eventually reinforced by 171 men under Lieutenant Colonel Silas Casey. And together, they all went to Victoria to try to negotiate with Rear Admiral R. Lambert Baines, who was commanding the British forces in the East Pacific. Baines, on the other hand, was aboard the 84-gun HMS Ganges, which he refused to leave for negotiations, believing this entire thing to be ridiculous and beneath the involvement of, quote, two great nations. Casey realized it was going to be pretty fruitless to go up against that kind of firepower. So he and everyone else went back to San Juan Island to ask for more reinforcements. By the end of August, so keep in mind, there's a letter out there somewhere floating around that hasn't reached the appropriate people yet. Yep. Uh, The American forces on San Juan Island had swelled to about 450 men who had armed themselves with 14 field cannons and an additional eight 32-pound guns collected from the USS Massachusetts. The U.S. troops reinforced their fortifications while the British Navy carried out drills along the coast with about 2,000 fighting men ready for action. And at this point, it was basically an arms race over a dead pig. Yeah. And from my own perspective, if you knew how tiny this piece of land was, it <laughs> makes it extra hilarious. And slash, where did they put all those boats? Well, and <laughs> some of the boats, they would go out on maneuvers and they were, they would just fire their cannons at the bluffs or at like big rocks that were on the land, which was vastly entertaining to some of the people who, uh, were, were around. It, it turned into this source of excitement of, okay, now, now we're going to do drills by firing our cannons at the at the bluffs here yeah when you think about the future what kind of technology do you envision whatever the future holds artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go paper-tarian? Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash paper
1: Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ends. Time for you to start paying some bills.
0: Almost three months after Cutler shot the pig, word finally reached Washington, D.C., which was then approximately a six-week trip away about what was going on. It was not through this letter sent to the War Department, though. It was when President James Buchanan read about it in the newspaper on September 3rd. Both the U.S. government and the British officials who were in Washington, D.C. were astonished that an international incident was brewing between Vancouver and Washington over a pig. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can only imagine how uh startling that must be to be like, oh, did you know, by the way, there's about to be a war? Wait, what? We're involved in what? Yeah. Uh, so you, you and I both did a lot of growing up during... The, the 80s and a lot of, like, the the nuclear war fear. Or is somebody going to push the red button? Yeah, the constant Cold War discussion. Yeah, and, and for a long time, I felt like a lot of this was just ridiculous paranoia and made-up things. And then when I get to this part about how really there was almost a shooting war between the United States and Britain over a pig, uh, I kind of go, oh, maybe that was not so completely far-fetched right. that somebody might just accidentally one day be like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to push the button. Yeah. Unfortunately, all of our uh, civilization is still filled with humans who are yes. fallible and will have lapses in judgment. And fortunately, we now have video conferencing, which would have resolved a lot of the problems we're talking about in this episode. Uh, President Buchanan, who had helped negotiate the Treaty of Oregon in the first place when he was Secretary of State, sent General Winfield Scott to try to restore calm. And General Scott was a battlefield general and a diplomat who had experience in border disputes. So he was really the perfect man for the job. But on top of this experience, General Scott also had firsthand knowledge of Harney's hotheadedness. He had been involved in half of Harney's courts martial. So Scott's trip... Out to this part of the world, which was a sea voyage through the Panama Canal, took another six additional weeks. But once he got there in October, he immediately set to work and stayed for about a month. Governor Douglas of Vancouver finally became an active participant in negotiations now that he had someone actually interested in negotiating to talk to. During that time that he was set up, Scott ordered all but one company of U.S. soldiers off the island and convinced Governor Douglas to withdraw the British ships as well, leaving just one at anchor in Griffin Bay. All of these removals were to stay in place until a complete survey of the island was complete. He also recommended that Harney be relieved of his command. Uh, Harney, at this point, was just being willfully insubordinate and had even tried to dismiss the troops that Scott had ordered to be left behind with troops of his own. Uh, and ultimately, he was indeed relieved of that command to the betterment of everyone. Which seems like the wisest course of action. Before we get into how this all resolved, let's take another moment. Talk about a word from our sponsor. That sounds great. So good communication, as we know. Extremely important to basically all of life's endeavors, Yeah, including work. Yeah, I'm sure we have all had that moment where like one person neglects to include something in an email or forgets to read something in an email and a huge, crazy mess develops and it could have all been avoided with good communication. (laughs) Or when there's some kind of weird information bottleneck and, (laughs) and just nobody has what they need. So... Because it's so important. Stay on top of communicating. You need to be able to stay connected and meet with coworkers and clients wherever they are. And that's why millions of small business professionals rely on GoToMeeting by Citrix. It is an awesome solution for meeting and collaborating online. With GoToMeeting, you can share the same screen so that you can look at documents and presentations together in real time. Makes it easier for everybody to stay on the same page. There's also built-in HD video conferencing, and you just need a webcam to see each other face-to-face. You can present, demonstrate, and simply just get together from anywhere with any Mac, PC, tablet, or smartphone. Uh, we have used this before to connect all our various... People from very far away in yeah. the same room. Yeah, and the the mobile connectivity makes it super handy because people can be out; they can be on vacation, but still check in if they have to, and they don't need yeah. to lug their laptop with them if they don't want to. Our, our tablet most, or phone. Our most recent experience with this was one time with a, a meeting that had wound up. Speaking of communication, not on either of our calendars, <laughs> uh, and I had to be at home at that time. I yeah. could not be in the office, and we were we were all it was. Just as easy as anything else to to just have us from all our various locations yeah, in the same virtual meeting room. You can see why millions choose GoToMeeting. Start hosting your own face-to-face online meetings today. Try it free for 30 days. Visit GoToMeeting.com. Click the Try It Free button and use the promo code STUFF. That's GoToMeeting.com, promo code STUFF. Okay, back to the end of the pig war. So, the United States and Britain finally negotiated a joint military occupation of the island. And that stayed in place for 12 years. Essentially, a few months after Scott's departure, Britain and the United States each sent about 100 troops to establish a presence on opposite ends of the island. So it was like... You can have the same amount of guys there. <laughs> it's like when parents of multiple children are trying to divide the exact right That's number exactly of French what fries, I was thinking. Like, or like everybody taping, has equal. Yeah, taping a line down the center of the bedroom. <laughs> this is your side. This is your brother's side. Yeah, uh, the American effort was soon derailed by the impending Civil War, though. The soldiers were at that point all going without pay and the camp was really falling into disrepair. When Virginia seceded on April 17th of 1861, Pickett gave up his command and he went home to join the Confederacy. He would later make a much bigger name for himself at the Battle of Gettysburg. In 1871, Britain and the United States signed the Treaty of Washington, and the question of who San Juan Island belonged to was turned over to Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany, and he sent it on to a three-man arbitration panel. This arbitration commission went on in Geneva for almost a year before finally ruling that the island belonged to the United States, and this officially put the boundary between the United States and Canada through the Harrow Strait. British troops withdrew from the island on November 25th of 1872, and the last of the U.S. troops had also left by July of 1874. In 1966, the U.S. government created San Juan Island National Historical Park to commemorate the event and its nonviolent resolution. I have read several pieces that discuss this whole event as like a great example of how two nations can resolve something peacefully. Which, okay, that part happened. Yes. But they should never have had to get to that point. <laughs> it, I mean, it seems from the outside. Yeah. It, it definitely, there was definitely <laughs> a lot of uh, people, especially you know, especially one particular person. That Harney was a problem. Um, and i I don't know why I had such trouble with his name. <laughs> I kept, uh, we've, we've cut all this out, I think, but I, I managed to type his name three different ways in my notes for some reason. Um, but yeah, he just kept wanting to take matters into his own hands and operate without going through the chain of command and basically be kind of a jerk. Yeah. And, and put more and more guys on this tiny island full of cheap and put more and more people at risk to kind of prove his point slash support his ego? Yeah. Yeah, when I was wrapping up the research on this podcast, I kind of did a, a second review to try to make sure that I had not just gotten the American uh, point of view uh-huh. because a lot of like a lot of the, the major actors in this this story as we have told it are the American people. Right. And so I went in and looked up some Canadian sources to just make sure because uh, most of the most of my original results happen to have been from American sources, and that they were basically the same because it, it a lot of the instigation really was coming from the American side, which totally makes sense that then a lot of the resolution also needed to be started by the American side. That's only fair. I'm sure that uh, when General Scott went out, there was probably a certain degree of embarrassment about the whole thing having gotten to this point in the first place. Yeah, he was not really happy about having to go all the way out there. He was not in great health then. <laughs> To go clean up a mess. Yeah, I'm going to have to travel (laughs) for six weeks to go clean up the stupid mess. I would be quite put out. I would too. Uh, But not being put out, do you have some listener mail for us? I do. Um, This one is from, we we got this back in February. We're recording it almost a month later. It does happen. It does happen. Uh, This is from Grace, who writes to us about our Rosa Parks episodes. And Grace says... I wanted to quickly address a question that was raised in the listener mail portion of the first Rosa Parks episode, namely, how did there come to be a Chinese American family in the middle of Mississippi? So basically, we read a a listener mail that was about another court case um, that had to do with integration and who was able to attend what school. And it was about uh, the daughter of a Chinese American family. I think it was a daughter who had not been allowed to attend the, quote, white school. Right. Um. And the, the court upheld that verdict. Uh, so the letter goes on. While I would never claim to be an expert on Mississippi history, being a Mississippian and a history buff can open you up to certain interesting and often depressing tidbits about my fascinating state. There has been a small population of Chinese Americans in the Mississippi Delta since Reconstruction. The Delta you see is uh, the northwest portion of the state, which was once the floodplain of the river and is now, thanks to levees where the majority of Mississippi's cotton is grown. When making this transition from floodplain, read, swamp, to fertile farmland, many Chinese laborers who had come through Mississippi laying railroad decided to stay to help drain the swamps. Though they were immediately classified as, quote, non-white by the white Mississippians, the Chinese immigrants occupied a sort of middle ground between whites and African Americans, not precisely lesser, but distinctly other. They carved out a firm niche for themselves as grocery store owners throughout the Delta after the swamps were drained. They served a mainly black clientele, but they were generally well-respected as honest businessmen by the white business owners of the area. Of course, the white communities also entirely excluded the Chinese Americans from their social structure. Separate schools, if possible, separate classrooms, if not. But violence against Chinese Americans was much less frequent than against African Americans. I can't imagine the Delta offered the Chinese immigrants the life they had dreamed of when they left China, but their community did prove to be a strong and economically successful one. Until the 70s, in fact, the Delta has the largest community of Asian Americans anywhere in the South. So there you go. If you're at all interested in little-known ethnic minorities in Mississippi, parentheses, the Vietnamese and Yugoslavs along the coast, the Choctaws, the Jewish population, and parentheses, I'm attaching a trailer for a documentary one of my friends is making called Subsippy, which I will watch. Yes, it I, looks really, really good. That's one of the reasons I had flagged it, was to watch this later. <laughs> and then she thanks us for the podcast and says, thanks for the good work. Thank you so much, Grace. Uh Number one, that is fascinating history. Yeah, it's really, uh it, you know, there are often those times when two cultures kind of happen together and people go, wait, what? like when yeah. there's, there's you know sort of a vietnamese connection to france and back and forth and that always confuses people which i would love to talk about on a future podcast uh but that of course clarifies why that it was does. going on and it also it also kind of brings up a lot of times people assume uh that a particular place's history was pretty homogenous in terms of living there right uh like there's this sort of idea sometimes that people have that Europe was mostly Caucasian people and maybe mostly it might be correct, but there was definitely a lot of racial and ethnic diversity happening in Europe way, way back into the past um, because the people were trading and people were traveling. And yeah. so, you know, if, if you look at uh, there's a great uh, a great Tumblr that is the people of color and medieval art history. Oh, yeah. Tumblr. I love it. I love it. Uh, constantly showing pictures of um Europe in the Middle Ages, paintings and, and other artwork from that time period uh, that that really shows how much of a spectrum there was of diversity happening it was not just exclusively one particular race or one particular color. Um, so I think this story kind of highlights that. Like a lot of people probably imagine Mississippi as a place that for many years of American history had mostly uh, white people, African-Americans and Native Americans, but it was actually a lot uh, broader than that in terms of who was living there. Yeah. So thank you, Grace, for writing. If you would like to write to us, you can. We're at historypodcast.discovery.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash history, On Twitter, at History, Our Tumblr, which is where we keep up with the medieval people of Feller, uh, Tumblr, uh, is at history.tumblr.com And we're also on Pinterest at pinterest.com slash Uh Our pretty new still growing website is it is also a thing you can come see and that is at mistinhistory.com. if you would like to learn more about something we talked about today you can come to our website and put in the name Pickett and you will find the article how the Battle of Gettysburg works uh, which is where Pickett who was a captain at this point in the the pig war uh, later made a much much more memorable name for himself uh, in in the Battle of Gettysburg. You can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Audible.com is the leading provider of downloadable digital audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. Audible has more than 100,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash history to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. To learn more about their open cases and to donate, visit LambdaLegal.org. That's LambdaLegal.org.
1: I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for The Everyday Guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual.